It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word story time back on the weekend back where we should be back in the annals of cricket history to wander around among the dusty archives through the sacks and find the tales of the game's past i'm jeff lemon adam collins is with me little smile on his face looking uh tired but happy i suppose after uh, a busy few days and it sounds like you've got a bunch of other people in the house <laughs> hi jeff yes uh, a long day uh, day one of anything's always long, isn't it? It was, uh, where have I been? I've been at Lords. It's like that a little bit at the moment. Where I was at Dubai doing a final three days ago. Today I was at Lords doing mm-hmm. Middlesex, Durham, Ben Stokes in his last uh, county game before taking up test duty, hold out for 15. Uh, yeah, all happening. Uh, and I've got friends of the show, Nick Harnett's in one room, Nick Tuvey's in the other. They're both uh, here with Rachel and me at the moment and Winnie, of course. So full house. So I'm in the kitchen. So the acoustics might not be quite as good as they normally are uh, in my relative soundproofed living room and there's a dishwasher going off in one corner and I think the uh, washing machine's about to come on again in a sec as well so yes all happening in my house but um, at half past ten at night I'm ready to power through uh, to the finish line of this day I'm, I'm sure we'll still be recording at midnight my time yeah look it's top, another topsy-turvy day early morning for me uh, later evening for you the times in which neither of us flourish but we're going <laughs> to do our best in, in the, the reverse instance and I, look I like to think that uh, there are all of these radio programs and so on. Some of the lovely stuff made by uh, our sometime collaborator Mike Williams, for instance, with all of these lush soundscapes, these these well chosen sound effects. We just do it live. We did live foley <laughs> on the final word. Put the washing machine on. Chuck the dishwasher on, yep. you know, put some cold power in, put yep. it on the economy 55 cycle or whatever it is. That's, That's it. real. That's real life. 
This is real life on the final word. So, what are we doing? We're talking about uh, we're talking about stories from cricket, but we're gonna start with something else. Well, I should also say I've I've just I just got back from Adelaide um, after all of the the driving during the week. You know, the old proclaimers like I'll walk a thousand miles collectively in order to impress you. Like maybe driving you know eighteen hundred kilometres is <laughs> as big a deal, but it's still. I think it, it still felt substantial after the last few days. So There um, is an alternative to all the, all the driving you've done over the last few days, mm. flying. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> might, be, might, be yeah. the, might be the better and yeah. safer option next time. <laughs> well, look, it, it is um, in, in many ways, but you also don't get to control the playlist. True. On more positive news from the road trip uh, this week, I got to sample a rare re-release from Big M of the Egg Flip Big M. Oh, um, Marmite, divisive. Mm. But interestingly, I note this. I think that maybe the, the term egg flip is not a big selling point anymore because maybe it doesn't sound like something that people want to imbibe because they've put a description of what it actually is. Like <laughs> they say egg flip and then they say vanilla and cinnamon um and i you know i reckon i've had a number of these over the course of my life but if you'd ever asked me what the actual flavor was i wouldn't have been able to tell you it was was something vaguely creamy but i finally figured it out it's just a custard tart it's like a liquid custard tart it just tastes like sugary custardy vanilla-y stuff with a bit of cinnamon in there so if you you could if you did the double, you stop at a country bakery and buy a large custard tart and an egg flip big M. You could eat the custard tart and then drink the custard tart on your way to South Australia, where the Belfour's custard tart is a, an institution. You know, an, an extraordinary um, bit of investigative journalism for me in the yeah. last week. Yeah, I agree. I've just realised upon that 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 previous word coming out of my mouth, that descriptor of marmite. As soon as you said egg flip, maybe. In Australian parlance, it should be just simply egg flip when something's super divisive because we, you know, don't eat much Marmite in Australia. We eat Vegemite, so thus the the jargon doesn't quite work. But the egg flip Big M does push people to the margins. It's a little bit like the federal election that's probably taking place or the election day is probably being held as you're listening to this, maybe, or as it's being released anyway, where Mm. the political debate's been pushed to the margins at different times through the last six weeks. Well, so it is with egg flip began opinions you either love it or hate it so if something mm. is that of that nature instead of describing it as marmite here forth on the final word we will describe it as egg flip i so decree egg flip egg flip yep beautiful why not okay. all right uh, a bit of correspondence came in <laughs> yes that, uh, that you were interested in i'm not sure what's in it but i just uh, i just know that it's there well here's from this, is, this came in from tony flynn a couple of weeks ago and i missed this because i wasn't doing a particularly good job of monitoring the inbox when I was in Dubai. But it says here, Hi, Jeff and Adam. Love the show. Imagine my joy when driving home last night listening to Storytime 88, you moved onto the topic of David Boone. We named our cat Booney in the week Booney retired. So we're obviously big fans of the man. It seems as though in life, as in cricket, DC Boone's legendary timing does exist. I stopped at the traffic lights during the Booney 537 nerd pledge right behind the car in this photo. No photo trickery, no Google image searches, just plain old perfect timing. And the number plate, I shit you not, Jeff, is DCB00N. I mean, I'm not sure whether that, it it looks like, I mean, it doesn't look like it's zeros. I mean, it's probably ON 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 closer inspection here. So it's it's been, you know, tailored that way. It's not just by chance that it's Uh DCB00N. I don't think that's actually a number plate, but it's clearly a massive Booney fan to make their number plate that. And all the better that Tony Flynn 
was behind that car as we were reading out that nerd pledge that we thought was Booney 537. Spoiler alert, it wasn't Booney. That comes up in the revisits later today. I can't believe it wasn't Booney 537. Mm-hmm. I was so chuffed with how I arrived at that. But yes, uh, Tony Flynn, timing is everything. I'm just trying to work out so which state is this? What's that number plate from? Is that a New South Wales plate? I think it's, it's I like think it's it. New South Wales, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, look, not being completely 100% au fait with, with uh, the way that the, the road registration system works there, it's a conventional plate in that it's not a vanity plate, you know, in, in terms of it's got the three, the three characters split into two separate halves with the little divot in the middle. So it could be, I mean, because we don't do the whole conventional, the way we grew up, three letters, three numbers, straightforward, knew where you stood, (laughs) knew where you stood in those days, blue passports, three letters, three numbers, that's all you need. Um, Eventually they ran out of combinations, you know, after after factoring out all of the um, the letter combinations like S-U-X and, you know, D-I-K and so on that that, that weren't allowed to be, uh, weren't allowed to be put in circulation unless they corrupt young minds. So this kind of looks like it could be legit because they started doing a bit of letters and numbers on both sides of the divide if you uh. were crossing the egg flip line. It could be 00N because sometimes they do go a couple of letters and a number. So I think it, you know what, I, actually d- I think it is the, the numeral. I mean, looking at this pretty yeah. closely, I, I think that that's it's narrow enough. Yeah. Yep. So that could be by pure chance that someone's got the number plate DC Boone. That's dream come true stuff as a cricket fan, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, I mean, that would be, yeah, like, you'd make sure you were opening the batting that weekend. <laughs> it's a, it's is, a great, is all I'm saying. Yeah, it's a great subgenre of the internet. If we, if we were to go, I'm sure there's a Facebook group that, that, that uh-huh. simply captures amazing number plates. This, yeah. on the podium, on you go. Yeah, if it was, say, VIC214, you know, Victor Trumper 214. Yeah, like. exactly, exactly. I mean, but you do sort of, you see them, don't you? Occasionally there have been number plates you mm-hmm. look at and go, that's just remarkable, that's a number plate. Well, this fits into that category. Thank you, Tony Flynn, for sharing that with us. We'll pop that on social media and, we'll, well, we'll pop it in the in the, uh, in the the email out for Patreon and on Discord, and if I turn my mind to it, I might try and tweet it out. Jeff, we have lots of numbers to get through. How do we do it? What is the show? Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge is the game that we play on The Final Word. Uh, It's a game that we play with people who listen to the show. Um, They're very lovely. They support the show. They fund it. They are the backers of The Final Word. They are the anonymous political donations uh, that come in fund (laughs) The Final Word that we keep shrouded in a veil of secrecy because we don't want to let you know that it's entirely funded by Big Coal. Um, (laughs) Who's not the industry. Just a fella called Big Cole. G'day guys, Big Cole here. Uh, got, a, uh, got a number for you. So here's how it works. They send in their contributions, these, these lovely people, but they're generally, and I say generally because the first one today doesn't fit this description, they're generally not a normal denomination of any sort of currency. They're a very specific one. They use the numbers on the far side of the decimal. They use the 00N, if you will, of the number plate scenario. <laughs> To make their number communicate with a number from cricket in some way. Now, this may sound confusing, but it'll become clear in time. There's a number. It relates to cricket. We don't know how. We have to work out how that has come to pass. For instance, Jonathan is our first cab off the Nerd Pledge rank today. He's sent through $2 in USD. The decimal says it's 2.00, but he sent a clue to specify that this is this is not a, a Julio pledge. This is not a, a pledge without an, a number connected to it. He says this, the number 
is two, not 2.00, but two, because that is the number of physical landmarks named after this cricketer. Your most important hint is that the landmarks do not include a cricket oval. Yeah, okay. So, uh, well, I, I, I note that um, 200 comes up later in the show in a weird way too. So just, a, again, a, a hook for later in one of my answers. Uh, Jonathan, there are lots there are lots of landmarks named after cricketers. I have had a fairly deep old dive here, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Lots of roads. And I will be staggered okay. if this doesn't involve some sort of road. There's a, mm-hmm. a, a, a road. Wilford Roads. Wilford Roads. I mean, you know, there's a... There should be. Well, yeah, that's a good thought. Maybe there should be somewhere in Yorkshire. The only one I remember is that is that in Adelaide just just uh, just earlier today, as a, well yesterday, the time we're recording, is I drove down Sir Donald Bradman Drive. Yes, um, and thought that it's it's a landmark and a shot, which is nice. Yes, that's right, and it sort of joins up with Memorial Drive that I'll always. Um, associate with Mark Woodford playing in the Rio International the week before the Australian Open, something like that. Or Leighton Hewitt winning it as a 16-year-old, mm. you know, things like that. Yeah, I just wanted to note that there are shitloads of roads named after cricketers, and that's where I'm going to go for a while here. So, just to pick a few, Brendan McCullum had a road named after him only during the 2015 World Cup in Dunedin. Mm-hmm. Brendan McCullum Drive, get it? Drive? Yep. There's a Trevor Bailey drive in Colchester. There's a shift really right slow the barnacle. <laughs> Trevor the barnacle Bailey. Incredibly slow. Speed, I got this book. <laughs> speed limit's eight miles an hour. <laughs> and I got this book, Adam, when I was a child. And it taught me all about playing cricket in England. And there was a picture of the barnacle, Trevor Bailey, on the front. And the pages were stuck together where I dropped the lolly in between. Can't wait to see Coney in a couple of weeks. He's back in England, I think, the week after next. Shivnarayan Chanderpaul Drive in Guyana. Mm-hmm. And just to move away from Rose for a moment, in 2010, not really a landmark either, but McDonald's named the Legend Burger after Warney. So, and there's these great pictures of Warney. I didn't remember this. Warney mm-hmm. in a Macca's smock that simply says Shane Warne in the name tag bit. And he's there flipping burgers at Macca's, the, uh, the Legend Burger. Fair enough, too. Sachin Tendulkar had a mango named after him, a variety of mango that, uh, that didn't exist until 2010. And they were known as Sachinis, um, and why? Because they, they they had a they had a distinctive shape, and the and the rationale was that Sachin Dendulkar is unique the world over, just like this particular type of mango. Give me fucking strength. Um, there's the Anil Kumble traffic circle in Bangalore, which was a tribute to his 10-wicket haul against Pakistan in 1999. They named a traffic wow. circle after him. There's the Chris Gale. Cover Drive Dance. There's a dance named after Chris Gale called the Chris Gale Cover Drive Dance. Uh-huh. The Gundapa Vishwanath Underpass in Bangalore, so staying in that part of the world is the annual Kumble oh. Traffic Circle. Look. And then I found a pretty cool chart that helps save a bit of time here with all the streets that are named after cricketing stars. I mean, you name it, they've got a street after them. Imran Khan, Javed Miandad, Wazim Akram, Virat Kohli, Sachin Tendulkar, Vivius Lachman, Kapil Dev, Kirtley Ambrose, Joel Garner, Gary Sobers, Steve Wall, Glenn McGrath, Laurie Nash, Richard Hadley, Jack Callis. And most of those, Jeff, come from our home city in Nelson, in Melbourne, in, in, the, uh, in the western suburbs. They've mm. gone full cricket. There was a new suburb there or a new... I guess housing estate there and that's why all of these cricketers names bob up so Coley Crescent Tendulkar Drive Lakshman Close Dev Crescent 
Khan Street, Meandad Street, Akram Way, Akhtar Avenue, Inzamam Drive, Eunice Lane, the Waka and Wazim Circuit, which are alongside <laughs> each other, which is quite cute. I mean, that would have been quite the experience back on the day, oh, getting from oh, the old yeah. Wazim and Waka Circuit. The, the Waz the Circuit, bloody hell, I think it's still going, isn't it? You Waz on and you whack off. Yeah, well... <laughs> Uh, uh, hard to recover from that. Uh, the Garnet Grove, the Ambrose Street, the Sobers Drive, the Wall Street, McGrath Way, Nash Boulevard, and so it goes. Is that Brendan gonna... Nash or Dion Nash who's getting the gig? There? Yeah, exactly. Laurie, sadly, but one for Dion. Oh, Laurie two, Nash got a street. Um, no, that's fantastic. It's Laurie Nash. Yeah, yeah it's Laurie Nash. That's Laurie what Nash. After, so the thirty sniper, the uh, the old. Yeah. You know, if I'd been there, body line would have lasted two overs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> What I'm going to go with purely for my own amusement, even though it's not a landmark, I'm going with Sachin. For all the roads named after him, plus the mango, I'm going to say that they are the two that you are pointing to, Jonathan. Prove me wrong. Or more to the point, just tell me what the other landmark is. Could I throw in, uh, though, the fact that the mango could be a landmark because you're forgetting the big mango uh, yeah. Uh, in, yeah. in Bowen uh, on the Bruce Highway in, in on the coast of Queensland. Um, the you know Listeners from overseas may know that Australia is the home of big things, if you have an otherwise unremarkable small country town, you build a large, you know, sheep or like ear of corn or something in it, it allegedly becomes a tourist attraction. The Big Mango is the one that got stolen a few years ago, remember? It got some blokes, came along with a flat peg truck, <laughs> tipped the Big Mango over and put it on the truck and drove it away. And then there was a kerfuffle and a search and about a week later they discreetly returned the Big Mango. How you return a, um, I mean, it's not. It's not that big, but maybe it's like six metres high or something. It's a pretty big mango. How you discreetly return a six-metre mango, I don't know, but they, they pulled it off. Well, uh, yeah, well, we, we did a video in front of the Big Banana many years ago, we didn't did. we, in Coffs Harbour. We, we couldn't have thieved that. Not that big. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, I don't think we could bung that on the back of a ute. We've no. also been to Goulburn, haven't we? And Goulburn's got the large merino. Yep, the big merino and the Supermax prison. They're the, uh, the, Super- the, two, <laughs> the two landmarks. Somewhere you'll find the awesome foursome still singing a, a song about canned fruit. Um, but hopefully not from the Supermax. Yeah, um, that's how they keep their spirits up on those long nights. Um, okay, yeah, well, very so, good. So, Jonathan, that's your that's your two. Come back to us. I'm sure there's something we're missing there, but that was fun going through all the roads. Second up today, Jeff, is from uh, Borat Agawal. The number is three six two, and the clue is his name would imply he's Simba. Now, this is a beautiful confluence of things. A, uh, getting a pledge in from another Barat. Obviously, we're very fond of Barats mm. on the final word. We've had numbers from Barat Agarwal before, so hello and uh, th- welcome back and thanks for the 362. Two, the bringing together of Simba. Uh, we've had correspondence a couple of weeks ago from Ed Simba, uh, as we've decided his hyphenated ah, yes. name should be arranged. And here we are talking about Simba, as his new nickname is running. I'm pretty sure his revisit gets a Guernsey later oh, in this yeah, episode too. I think it does. I um, think. So, and you know, and he's quite happy with the new nickname that he's got because he thinks it's better than the, the, the previous versions he's he's had uh, in his life from his other friends. Yeah, I was thinking about him the other night when watching the Nottingham Forest, Sheffield United playoff semi-final when the goalkeeper for Forest Samba saved three penalties. And I was thinking of uh, Ed Simba or Ed Ben Basim. Uh, um, yes, yeah, it could be a mobile phone name as well. You know, Ed Sim, three bars, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> you know, good reception. Anyway, uh, I, I hope there'll be a good reception for my answer to this clue. So his name would imply he's Simba. Uh, Simba is a the Lion King and 
be the son of the Lion King. Uh, becomes the Lion King, obviously. Everything the sunlight touches uh, grows up to fulfil his manifest destiny in a in a tale of, uh, I suppose the you know the, the the unquestioned hierarchy of nobility and how being born into wealth and privilege means that you will overtake wealth and privilege and rule all below you. Yeah, great, good good morals of this. But as long as you have a couple of happy friends along the way who sing a song, everything's fine. Anyway, I, I'm thinking. All right, if you look at Hindi in particular, we know that the word sing. S-I-N-G-H, and that there are lots of sort of variations in other languages um, around the region as well. It means lion. It's spilled over, you know, something like Singapore comes from Singapore, which is the lion city, the city of the lion. Uh, you can buy a Singa beer from Thailand, which I'm sure you've done before, even if you haven't travelled to Thailand. It has a big lion on the front, Singa, and there's a sort of Hindu influence in in Thai religion um, dating back hundreds and hundreds of years. And and so the the Singa beer has the the lion connection. So I'm thinking, all right, there are are literally millions of people with lion attached to their name if I were looking around India. We also know that the word for king is usually Raj, which is very common in its variations, you know, lots of Rajas and Rajputs and, and Rajindas and, and, and so on. But there was no Raj Singh that I could find who had played cricket at a high level. There were Raj Singhs who played cricket for County Clare, uh, for the Knotts Unity Casual Second Eleven, <laughs> for, <laughs> for the Mosley Ashfield Third Eleven, the Aldershot Fourth Eleven, um, but no, none of those. Um, no other rulers would work. I, obviously, I looked at Nawabs, but that didn't work. And then I thought, hang on, we are thinking about Simba. We're not thinking about Mustafa, the original Lion King. At the start of the movie, we're thinking about the point of the movie is that he's the son of the king. He's he's growing up to, to try to take his destiny. And I thought, what's the I word? just can't wait to be king. Exactly, exactly. I just can't wait to inherit the family wealth and use that to uh, imply that I have a divine right to rule over others. What means prince in Hindi? I wasn't quite sure. I looked it up. Yuvraj. Hello. Ah, right. And... And Yuvraj Singh is a player who goes, who goes right back. Right? His, his first list A match, and I thought you'd enjoy this because you like things like this, was in October 1999. So he's one of those players who's, who's very recently concluded career stretches all the way back to the previous millennium. He played in the very first T20 season in 2003. And I thought, all right, I'm looking for a 362. Uh, is something to do with Yuvraj Singh? He ended up playing 423 list day matches. Uh, over 300 of them were for India, but not 362 of them. 50 over cricket was really his 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 bag. He made over 12,500 runs in list day cricket. Very useful with the ball too. List day cricket took 166 wickets, an average of 36.2, Very which good. is... The number of Barat, but I thought I don't, I don't think that's kind of central enough to Yuvraj to be where he's going. And then I found it. Go on to the World Cup in 2011, India's big moment. Yuvraj Singh in the tournament makes 362 runs with a century and four fifties in eight innings. Extraordinary stuff, averaging over 90 and picked up 15 wickets with his left arm. Nothing muches in what must be his finest hour for India as he uh, was the key player in taking them to the 2011 World Cup win. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was player of the tournament. Thank you, Barat Agarwal. That's a beauty of a clue. They're the kind of clues we like, the ones where uh, we can just work it out logically.
Happy days. Next is over to me, Jeff. It's Alex Brown, who's been a, a regular pleasure of ours. Uh, he says it'll be an easy one for us at five to seven. It just makes me nervous yeah. when someone says this one will be easy. It's like, ooh, now, now they're expecting us to get it in one. True, but in noting the fact that Alex has given us some New Zealand-oriented numbers before. Yeah, that's it. I thought I'd go back to a time that... I reflect on very fondly uh, the 2015 Men's World Cup. I just made the decision that I was going to do this properly for a living. I hadn't quite finished doing what I was doing before. I had a bit of an in-between job after politics and before I went all in, uh, in into cricket. And I was, I think I might have been serving out my leave period, whatever it was. I wasn't quite all in on cricket, but I was following the tournament so closely, knowing that I was about to be all in on cricket. I think I was writing a, a couple of columns a week, and I came on your podcast, Jeff, which was then the mm-hmm. Guardian Cricket World Cup Weekly or something like that, and did a few other bits and bobs, but yeah, I was peripherally involved, but not heavily involved, and it's probably the last time that I can think of myself being a, a fan first and a, and a journalist second, or, or something like that, and that was certainly the case during the group stage uh, game between New Zealand and Australia in, in Auckland, and it was the perfect start time, I suppose, in that part of my life when I was going out pretty heavily on each Friday and Saturday night. Midday Saturday, chef's kiss. That is perfect. So you can have a night out. And I think I set my alarm for sort of 11.58am to wake up as the first ball was being bowled. And, and so it was over at Eden Park. Clark was back in to lead the team after the England win. They elected the bat first. Finch was out early to Tim Southey. Um, Watto, I remember, was caught at the end of Daniel Vittori's first over trying to pop him into the crowd, but he was caught in the deep mm. pocket of the ground there. Warner was leg before wicket to Tim Southey as well. So Australia are a three for 80. It's not a pedestrian start. It's not a bonkers start. It's a kind of, you know, three for 80 in a one-day international, fairly standard. Then all hell breaks loose when Trent Bolt comes back for his second spell. Now he gets Maxie and Marsh chopping on both of them in the space of three deliveries and suddenly it's six for 97 from just 18.4 overs. Clark gives him catching practice to cover in his next over. The collapse is well and truly on. Mitchell Johnson does the same off bolt later in that same over. So in consecutive overs, he's taken two wickets in each. He then takes Mitchell Stark's middle stump out of the ground. The collapse is seven for 26. Australia are 106 for nine in just 21.6 overs. Talk about all happening. They're saved to an extent by Brad Haddon, who makes 43, and a young gish, Pat Cummins, who, who uh, adds seven not out from 30 balls, and they're all out for 151 in the 33rd over. Trent Bolt, 10 overs, three maidens, five for 27. So I'm pretty sure that's what the number will relate to. But it's worth just going through what the reply looks like as well. McCollum's hogwild initially. Um, <laughs> oh, this game. This even game. after nearly having his arm broken. Like, I think Stark... Pretty much breaks McCullum's arm. Well, near enough to it, not that he would ever let on. They put uh-huh. a, they put a little Band-Aid on it, and he's back to hitting sixes the next ball. Hits a half-century in 22 deliveries, which I reckon might have been a World Cup record, or equaling his own World Cup record, something like that. Cummins eventually gets him caught at mid-off a couple of deliveries later, though. Just when the game looked gone, it's like, it's two for 78 from 7.4 overs. It's, you know, into wild territory by this stage. It's Stark's turn to take off, though. He'd already picked up Guptill before Baz's wicket. The next over, he gets two wickets in two balls. Ross Taylor and Grant Elliott are both castled. It's four for 79. Uh, Then Corey Anderson and Kane Williamson suck the life out of the game a little bit and get them up to 131 for four, just 23 runs 
runs to get. They're doing it easier. There is so much time on the clock. But then Maxi from nowhere gets the flow of play, gets Corey Anderson caught by Cummins at mid-on. There's a crack of light, and they bring Stark back straight away. They're not going to wait for the death. It's like, if we're going to win this, we've got to bowl them out. We've got to do it soon. And Stark gets moving straight away. He nicks off Ronke. The next over, he, he takes two in and over for the fourth time in the game. There have been two wickets in one over. That's with Milne and Southey both losing their middle stumps. So out walks Trent Bolt at number 11. So the heroics earlier in that day, five for 27 from his 10. He has two balls to negotiate from Mitch Stark, and he somehow does it. He does his job. There's a sigh of relief. Pat Cummins is bowling the next over to Kane Williamson. Six runs to win. First ball over long on. Does it in one delivery. Uh, he's 45 not out. That's all happened in the space of 23.1 overs. So 55 <laughs> in total for the whole match. That wasn't even dark in Auckland, but it was one of the truly great uh, World Cup games with two out outstanding performances. Bolt's 5 for 27, Stark's 6 for 28, and, and the postscript, of course, was Brad Haddon saying he just didn't like the environment, that the New Zealanders were being too nice to them, so he made a point of being as awful as possible at the final a, a month or so later. And that anecdote was getting a run again this week, Jeff, when Brendan McCullum was formally appointed as the, as the England Test coach. The next year, uh-huh. we were there again at Eden Park, same venue as... Bolt takes five again against Australia to start that one-day series, and we had a great road trip. We spoke about road trips earlier about driving to Adelaide. A less eventful, but well, I say less eventful. No, no, uh, no run-ins with the with the with the law when we drove from. I think we went from Wellington to Auckland back to Wellington, or vice versa. Whatever it was, we mm. we clocked up plenty of miles that week during the one-day series, and. And the, the time after that, when I was at Eden Park watching Australia and New Zealand, uh, the visitors chased down 245 with seven balls to spare in a T20 international, which was just just madness. So something about that ground that brings yep. the best out of the teams. And I suppose Marcus Stoinis, uh, which you were at, Jeff, mm-hmm. made his maiden international 100. Four, eight, whatever it was. Yeah. And that was at Eden Gardens too. So the moral to this story, play more cricket at the rugby ground. Yeah, Eden Park. Eden Park. Eden Gardens is the one in India. Did I call it Eden Gardens? I meant Eden Park. Hopefully we'll be at Eden Gardens next year for a test match. If the rumours are accurate and the BCCI are planning on scheduling a test between India and Australia at Eden Gardens for the first time since 2001, we'd both be very happy. Well, I look forward to getting the schedule for that about 10 days before the start of the series, as yes, is the, I, uh, the tradition. I, I, asked a, I asked Dan Breeding the other day, you know, what do you think the dates will be for the Border Gavaska Trophy next year. And I thought, even as those words came out of my mouth, I'm like, why am I even asking that question? We're going to find out the dates <laughs> as we're getting on the yeah. plane. We're going to find uh-huh. out. It'll be a bit like being on the election trail when you're on the on the leader's plane or on the leader's bus. You, you often will go yeah. to the airport. I've been part of this on the other side. The reporters won't know where they're flying to when they get to the Air Force Base. That will be the same yeah. when we get to India. We could be off to Lucknow. We could be going to, to Ranchi again. We could be heading up to Dharamshala. It'll all be at the will of the BCCI as late as they can leave it. It'll be like when the KLF did that big um, press junket thing on, on an island, uh, you know, off the coast of Scotland somewhere, and they just invited a bunch of journalists and said, come to Heathrow and bring your passports. And, and the, uh, the the destination on the destination board just said, further. And everybody got on the plane and they ended up where they ended up and were part of this, like, pagan ceremony to burn the wicker man and all the rest of it. I tell you what, if they, uh, if they, still, had those mystery, if they still sold those mystery flights, that would be my banker Christmas present. I've often yeah. thought how much easier my life would be. It was Qantas, wasn't it? If Qantas still sold mystery flights, that's simply what I would buy people for a gift. I would simply buy them a mystery mm. flight. If you're listening, Qantas executives, bring it back. 
Bring it back. That's my Bring message. it back. Bring back <laughs> Australia A <laughs> quadrangular <laughs> tournaments. Um, the egg flip big M. Well, it's back, but only for a limited time. Quantum so, Leap's yeah, back. Uh, Quantum Leap's coming yeah, back Quantum next Leap. year. Uh, don't yeah. forget your toothbrush in keeping with the theme of uh, of Qantas uh, mystery flights. I'm pretty sure that was the premise of Don't Forget Your Toothbrush, wasn't it? That uh, you'd be sent yeah. somewhere at the end of the show if you were the winner. So, yeah. All for that. Very good. Okay. Well, I remember that game fondly. Thank you, Alex Brown. Uh, Steve Lofthouse is next. The number, and far less away in your memory, is $3.27 in AUD. And, and let, me, let me set this up for you, Adam. So Steve, who uh, surprisingly is known to his friends as Lofty, Lofty Lofthouse, says, this number refers to the final word, second most frequently referenced Maxwell. He says, I haven't done the stats, but it feels accurate for the last year before this pledge was submitted at least. He says, and, and an episode where the thing took place. So I, I replied immediately and said, ah, oh, can't wait to dive into this because I'm sure there'll be some sort of Jim Maxwell link here. Surely he's our second most referred to Maxwell. And, and Lofty replied and said, actually, no, I'm not referring to Jim Maxwell. But you're on the right track in that it's someone not known for playing cricket. Also... Maxwell is his first name. I was quite confused for a while, and I did look up some Maxwell first Mr. name cricketers. Sheffield. Hello, boys. Uh, <laughs> yes, eventually this is this is this was the conclusion that I came to. I was like, this is got a relation. She to was Mr. working Sheffield at a bridal shop in Sh- Flushing, Queens, when her boyfriend kicked her out of one of those crushing scenes. What was she to do? Where was she to go? She was out on her fanny. So every Flushing to Sheffield's door, she was there to sell makeup. Up, but the, the father, father saw more inappropriate hiring practices. Really quite questionable. That's how became the nanny. Yes, uh, yes, Mr. Sheffield's door. Mr. Sheffield's uh, name. If uh, I, I've revealed this on the show before, but his full name is Maxwell Beverly Sheffield. Not a lot of people <laughs> would know the middle name. Of, uh, Who Mr. would have guessed that McGowan described was just exactly was what exactly the doctor, what the doctor, doctor prescribed. prescribed? Well, the father uh, finds a beguiling. Watch, Watch out, out CC. CC. And, a kid, and the and kids a, are actually kids smiling. Are actually smiling. That's uh, how it ought to be, something like the, that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. It's, and it's, then the worst line of the whole song, she's the lady in red lady when in everybody red, else everybody is wearing else tan. Everybody else is wearing tan. Like, that's all you could the figure, flashing figure girl out. Fl- flashing girl from flash, flashing, flashing, flashing. Flashy, flashy girl, girl from, from flashing. Flashy girl from flashing. The nanny named Fran. The nanny named Fran. It's the only thing they could think of to run with Fran. I mean, it's not a not a hugely <laughs> complex sort of in terms of in terms of assonance and structure. I'm sure you could find a way to run with Fran that wasn't tan. But anyway, look. Sometimes when you're writing a TV jingle, you've you've blown all of the time on the first six lines, and then you've just got to finish it off and get your check. Uh, as Charles Shaughnessy did to play Maxwell Sheffield on the show for uh, you know, it must have been a good um, good cash cow for a while, a bunch of seasons. It, it all went on, but I was like, okay. How do I get a final word number out of the show? Now, we've speculated whether Fran Drescher might be interested in cricket before due to some very tenuous links about uh, there being a suburb of New York City called Jamaica um, and about there being some cricketers coming out of Queens, sort of her, where, where, where she was from. Nothing that, that, that links to cricket, but, well, look, I'll, I'll let on about the number in a second, but okay. an episode where the thing took place... Adam, I'm not sure if you would remember the the full plot oh, arc of the, the thing. Name, but if we 
The thing, the thing is, surely, the thing... I'm going to take a punt here. Now, you've written no notes for this. So this is purely... Uh-huh. I think the thing is going to relate to when he told her that he loved her and he took it back. Uh-huh. Am I okay. right? So, this, this, this is an episode called A Pup in Paris. Uh, and in this episode, which I normally doing research for the final word, I'm doing a lot of reading and so on. Did I watch the entire episode? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> uh, and the kids were actually smiling. Such joy de vivre. Yeah, that's oh, what it is. is that what it is? Yeah. Such joie de vivre. Wow. Okay, that's that is that is yeah, um, joie de vivre. Uh, that's ambitious to put in a song. I've got to say. So, right. Pup in Paris, here's the premise. Uh, you may remember that, that, that Maxwell Sheffield's mother doesn't really appear on screen, I don't think, ever, but she's always on the phone yes. scolding him. He's a wealthy English millionaire. He's a, he's a Broadway producer. Mm-hmm. He has a long-running feud with Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, <laughs> who is not a fictional producer, but Maxwell Sheffield is a fictional producer. Uh, Maxwell Sheffield's mother rings him and tells him that his dissolute brother, Nigel, has just cashed out his trust fund and liquidated it and he's going to buy a nightclub in Paris and that Maxwell must go to Paris and talk some sense into Nigel before he wastes all of his money. Uh, so, so Maxwell does so. He's getting ready to go uh, and at the same time, you may remember C.C. Babcock, his, his mm. offsider in the theatre production industry, had a, a, an adorable dog called Chester. Yes. Uh, who was probably actually about 17 real dogs in the filming of the series. Um, it was a little fluffy thing. Like the uh, Olsen sisters in Full House. Yes, yeah. They did had about 17 Olsen sisters. They had to <laughs> rotate them through. So, look, the, the, the dog, the joke is always that the dog doesn't actually like Cece, but it does like Fran. Cece's leaving it with Fran to go and get, I don't know, dog washed or... or Coiffured or something. Uh, the dog, for reasons that are not really well explained, is in a sort of carry bag that happens to be identical to the carry bag that Maxwell Sheffield is taking to Paris. And as he leaves the kitchen, he picks up the wrong bag and takes the dog with him and gets on the plane. Well, his trusty nanny soon realises the mistake and follows him to the airport to get the dog back, where she has to buy a first-class ticket on CC's credit card um, in order to get onto the plane to tell him that they need to swap the bags. But while she's trying to swap the bags, she's accidentally locked in a storage cupboard on the plane, as usually happens many times on planes. And thus, she's only released when they're over the ocean and she has to travel with him to Paris, where in a twist, a real twist of fate, there's a big Andrew Lloyd Webber musical on and so all the hotels in town are booked except for one room, one double room in a hotel hotel with, with a single bed. And now, seasons and seasons of unresolved sexual tension building up to this point. Will the nanny and Mr Sheffield act on their feelings? Will they, will they be honest about their impulses towards one another? Weirdly enough, the scriptwriters don't actually make any use of this device. They never sleep in the bed. Uh, so that seemed like kind of pointless. So they just forgot that they had that bit of the plot. Uh, but they do meet Nigel. They, uh, you know, he has a big fight with Maxwell about whether he should not get the nightclub, but then they go down to the nightclub and it's a raging success. Who should be singing there but Eartha Kitt in a guest <laughs> role in this particular episode. Um, <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, Maxwell says, well, maybe, look, maybe Nigel should be free to do what he wants and we should all butt out of his life. And he says, I'm going to live life to the full. Let's go out on the town. Let's do something wild because they've had this nice day together and they've enjoyed themselves. And then doing something wild ends up being going back to the airport to get on a plane because he wants to go back and see his kids see if they have any joie de vivre. However, on the way home, heavy turbulence, the plane's yes. slaloming around This was the a sky. season finale. I'm pretty sure this was this, a season finale or a cliffhanger. It was. It was a cliffhanger. Would they survive? They thought the plane was going down. They clutch onto each other. 
And Maxwell Sheffield looks into the eyes of Fran Fine and says, I love you. And then they make out fiercely, which is what you do when you think your plane's about to crash. Right. All of that happened. And then, yep, start of the, the, the next season, he uh, tries to retract the confession of love and then that becomes The Thing and that goes on for, I don't know, about seven more seasons that they refer to The Thing. And that the big joke is that Niles, the butler, doesn't know what The Thing is and that it takes a really long time. He, they're always talking about The Thing and he's like, what is The Thing? What is The Thing? And there's a big reveal when he finds out what The Thing is. I feel like, didn't Seinfeld effectively lift this storyline towards the end? I've got a feeling that Seinfeld did a similar thing towards the end with with Elaine. I nearly forgot uh, Julia mm. Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character name there and Jerry. Don't they have a similar... But they were already exes. I love you, but I took it back or something. Yeah, no, of course, yeah. Anyway, I, I just feel like there was um, some uh, some sharing going on. But that's okay. It was the 90s. Right. Probably, yeah. I mean, look, it, it was resolved sexual tension um, okay. between them. They'd started that way and become friends. That was the trajectory. Anyway, that is the episode, A Pup in Paris. Uh, at the time, sitcoms had very long runs, very long season runs. They'd go for like more than half the year to the point where when mm. it ended, it felt like something really notable. You're like, oh, it's the last one of the season. We have to wait wow. four months for another season to start. ER's you know, not on like this Thursday night. Or something. <laughs> the, the off season was shorter than the on season. Um, and this episode in which all of this takes place, the episode that I have related to you was indeed the cliffhanger. It was the end of season three and it was episode 27. Ah. Uh, Lofty 327. Lofty. That is just, of all the things, of all the different ways we've had Nerd Pledges sent through, that has to be, I mean, that's as good as it gets. That's as good as it gets. Thank which you. was also a rom-com um, starring Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh, I feel I feel like we're in our stride now. We're into our work now. We've only been recording for 45 minutes. That's really got us going. Up and about. <laughs> Ain't nothing going to break my stride. Uh, yeah, thank you, Lofty. So that's the 327. Before we move off that, that part of the United States, Jeff, before we go to our next number, I should congratulate our dear friend Brian R. Kane from the Discord channel, among other places, one of our patrons, who um, has been this week selected to stand in the Cricket World Cup League 2 warm-ups in Texas featuring the full Nepal and Oman one-day international squads. How cool is that? Awesome. Our, our Brian, the final words, Brian R. Kane. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, they might be Aussie warm-up Brian. games. Aussie Brian. <laughs> sure, he's not from Australia, but oh, we'll no. claim him. Yeah, yeah. He, he's very much an American, believe me. He, believe yeah. me. He is a true American. But yeah, he is uh, He is standing in his first international cricket uh, as part Amazing. of that, um, a part of those warm-up games in Texas. So that's pretty cool. So in terms of, you know, final word community, we've had a, a T20 international debut Yes. A couple of weeks ago, and now we're going to have a, an umpiring debut. Outstanding. We're on the way up. Next number, Jeff. Let's do it. All right, David Nichols. Uh, the number is $5.18, 518. David says, I hope this leads you down some merry paths. There's no clue that wouldn't give it away. However, I hijacked a couple of days of our holiday to tick off a cricket bucket list item and in the process attempted to convert my Hong Kong girlfriend to cricket. When I planned this, I had no idea that the match would be historic for another reason. Historic 518. Mm. Okay. I'm jumping in the time machine here a little bit. I'm assuming that David Nichols is a little bit older than you and me. 
Not super mm-hmm. old. Not not in his 80s. Maybe in his 60s. To fit with my time frame that I'm about okay. to tell you about. All right. So right. I'm glad you clarified that because it's, you're just like, I'm just assuming from his name that he's in his 60s. No, but you're no, like, okay. In no, order for this to work, he needs to be in his 60s. I, I would say so. Just based on what he's saying there about, you know, girlfriend, which would probably usually suggest maybe in his 20s. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just yeah. guessing. A few assumptions sure. are played. Sure. Sure. So, let me take you to the WACA ground in November 1981. Australia Please. are playing Pakistan, dil-dil. Okay, can I have a hat if we're going to the WACA <laughs> ground in Because, you know, it's... You can sit in the recently completed Inverarity stand uh, that would have been around the early 80s that didn't have a roof until the last five years of existence and they knocked it down a couple of weeks ago and I was absolutely gutted. Day one of the test series between Australia and Pakistan, Australia have bowled out for 180. Mm-hmm. Good work, Pakistan. Imran takes forfer. They've done well. Uh, day two, though, it doesn't go so well. At one stage, they're eight for 26. <laughs> Ooh. When Safraz Nawaz boshes 26 from 33 coming in at Number 10, he saves their blushes to a minor extent. They're all out for 62 in 21.2 overs. Blimey. Oh, um, the next highest score after Safraz Nawaz was six, by the way. A couple of top order players got six. Lily, five for 18 from nine. That's the number I'm going to mm-hmm. go with because David says in his clue, the historic part of it comes later. So we need to have yeah. the 518 cleared off early in the piece. And I'm going to go with Lily's five for 18 from nine overs. Alderman takes four. Tomo takes one. The test is moving quickly. That's okay. the noteworthy moment. Second time around, Australia fare a fair bit better. They, they make 424 for eight declared. A Kim Hughes century, Bruce Lee at 85, Rob Marsh 47. So a good, a good day for the West Australians. Pakistan has set 543. And they're never really in it, but a draw is still possible. Outside chance of a draw. And Pakistan have Java Biandad as captain. Basically at the peak of his powers, the great Karachiite there in, in 1981-82. Before tea on day four, when it's still notionally possible that Pakistan might save the test match, Miandad takes a single behind square and he runs into Dennis Lilly on the way back in his follow-through. Uh. And the two of them nearly take each other out uh-huh. and then Dennis Lilly sees fit to kick Java Miandad for reasons that had never been properly explained. He, he cited provocation either way. He kicked him. And Meandad picks up the bat like a spear and threatens to smash his fucking head off. And Lily braces for that like a boxer and then charges at Meandad for a, for a second pop. Uh, umpire Tony Crafter gets in the middle to sort the whole thing out. Bob Simpson describes it as the worst thing he's ever seen on the cricket field. Keith Miller uh-huh. said they should ban Lily for the rest of the season. And you know how I mentioned, you know how I mentioned earlier today that two hundred might come up as a nerd pledge later. Well, two hundred uh-huh. was what Dennis Lilly was fined. That was it, two hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> On you go, two hundred bucks and away uh-huh. you went. In the end, Meandad was the fifth man out for seventy nine. He was bowled by Bruce Yardley at that stage. Are one hundred and seventy four for five? They were all out for two hundred and fifty six. On the fifth day, Yardley takes six for eighty four, but. I wonder if that works, David, with Lily taking five for 18 earlier in the test match, but the moment of historic significance being the brawl that ensued late on day four, which I went back and watched on YouTube. I mean, imagine it happened today. Goodness gracious me. I originally was looking and sniffing around the aluminium bat, thinking that might have uh-huh. been it, but let's yeah. back that in. WACA ground, WACA ground, 1981. 
have I gone? I like it. I was sceptical at first. I was, I was like, yeah, look, I, I think we're going back a long way here and this seems like it might be more recent. But cricket bucket list, maybe you've travelled to Perth in yep. the 80s for reasons best known to you. Yep. Um, and maybe you're like, I've never been to a game at the Wacker. You know, maybe that's kind of what I'm thinking. Margaret I mean, River. Well, the Wacker only had their first test match in 1970, didn't they? So it was still kind of a novelty by that point. And they had the rep. They had the they had the fast pitch rep by that exactly. point. Oh, the big cracks. Oh, you know, and, and you'd think, oh, we, we go there and see this happen, and, and then see Lily, and and, and, and and it might have been watching Dennis Lily bowl on his home ground towards the end of his career. Yep. That might have been the, the motivation. Yep. So there's enough there. Yeah, it might have been through, Java I mean, being an absolute loose unit, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just, just yeah. rolling around the place trying to bash someone's head in with his cricket well, they, bat. They, they, they don't mean, need I'll, to be. They don't need to be that old either, by the way. So my parents went on a date in 1981. Uh, on Queen's Birthday Monday to VFL Park where 91,000 people saw Hawthorne beat Collingwood. Um, Your they, dad left early to beat the traffic. He's like, nice to meet you. I'm sure you did. Catch you later. I think one of their first dates, that he took her to Marab and watched Hawthorne lose against St Kilda in the late 70s. Um, it's classic, isn't it? But, yeah, and but, your mum's English, so it's not, it's not yeah, like she yeah, was a yeah. rabid oh, no, fan no. who wanted to go to the footy. She, she's, yeah. been a, she's been a Hawthorne member for... I guess 40 odd years now and hasn't got a fucking clue what's going on it's wonderful but yeah so I mean it, yeah on that basis they could have been in their early 20s or something like that <laughs> let us know look it's possible it's possible either way it's a good story and I like the fact that he got bowled by Bruce Yardley like he has the big tater tate with the big fierce fast bowler and then gets knocked over by you know <laughs> by the spinner probably a whole, not a whole lot coming at him through the air anyway good work Bruce with the six foot. So that's David Nichols. Um, Vivek Arcot, who has pledged before and is back for another go. Welcome back, Vivek. Uh, $2.04. That, that, that is the number. And the very brief clue says, the genesis of nightmares. So historically, Adam Vivek has sent us Indian numbers, his last link yep. with the Nawab of Najafka link to Verenda Sewag. That's right. Uh, first occupant of the final word shit list. <laughs> who did make double hundreds, most famously in, in ODIs. Um, no one's ever made 204 in one day cricket. There've been a bunch in tests. I was trying to think, okay, what, what works out as, an, as the start of nightmares? The only one against India was Greg Chappell in Sydney 81 and that wasn't the start of nightmares for India because that was the first test and they had a draw and a win after that and Chappell didn't dominate the series and he never played India again. So I thought it could maybe in a tenuous way link to the uh, the coaching problems they had when Greg Chappell was coaching India and Saurav Ganguly was king and they did not see eye to eye. Um, but that, was, that wasn't a nightmare, that was just a bit uncomfortable. Chiteshwa Pajara made 204 in 2013, a nightmare for Indian supporters who wanted him out of the side for the next eight years <laughs> and finally got their way, although he might be back this year, who knows. Um, yeah, but no, that didn't that didn't work. Uh, team scores, I was looking at some ODIs. There's a, well, this one's vaguely interesting. There's a, there's a very modern sort of all-rounder type match back in 1980. Um, so India make 204. Thanks to Kapil Dev making 75 from 51 balls at the Gabba. Nine fours, three sixes. The Kiwis get underpinned by uh, your mate, Jeremy Carney, who makes 47 not out. Uh, but it's sealed by Lance Cairns, who makes 27 off 19. So you've got two guys with strike rates in the 140s in a match in 1980, which just didn't happen, really, in those days. Um, here is a stat that I worked out that I very much enjoyed. Kapil Dev with his 75 out of 204. 75 off 51 balls. So he made 36% of the runs for India off 17% of the balls faced for India. 
which is which is quite good as a number. Jeremy Carney also took none for seventy from his ten overs, so uh, he he owed them a few with the bat, and luckily he got them back. But um, the Kiwis won with two balls to spare, so they they passed the two hundred four. And there's one in nineteen ninety three where India failed to chase two hundred and four in Colombo, starring Peter Fork, uh, Ranatunga made a half century, and then there's this crazy Indian innings in which Manoj Prabhakar makes eighty six. Azaruddin, sports betting enthusiast, mates 62. So they've made 148 between them, and the other nine players make 38 runs, <laughs> uh, including Sachin getting run out for 15, and they're all out eight runs short. But I don't think that was the genesis of nightmares mm. either. And uh, here is where I settled, and there's, there's, a, there's a caveat that I'll link back to in a second, but... but Here's where I ended up. This is a test match. It's in Bangalore in 1987. Pakistan playing India. They've had two draws in the series. This is the decider. It's uh, Sunny Gavaskar's last year of test cricket. Maninda Singh, the Sikh left-arm bowler, takes seven wickets. Pakistan all out for 116. It's a Bunsen burner. Uh, what really tells you it's a Bunsen burner is that Imran Khan and Wazim Akram are playing for Pakistan and they bowl five overs between them in the first innings. <laughs> Because it just goes straight to the spinners. So Iqbal Kasim, the left-arm orthodox, yep. and, and Tausif Ahmed, the off-spinner, take five wickets apiece. And Tausif Ahmed came up a lot during our recent he visit did, to Pakistan, yes. Adam, because he's the one who got picked by Javed Miandad from bowling in the nets eight years earlier when he it's took three to have a trundle. Yeah. And Javed said, all right, you're playing in the test match tomorrow. <laughs> Go and get your stuff. <laughs> they checked him into the hotel. So India, all out 145. Pakistan do better the second time. They don't make any half centuries, but they do make 249. So India need 221 to win. Tough task on a burner. Gavaska bats five and a half hours, either side of the rest day, which they have in the middle there. But he keeps losing batting partners. So he makes 51 before the rest day and 45 after it. It doesn't throw him off. But when he's on 96, the score's on 180. Seven wickets down India. Uh, he edges the left arm at a slip. Roger Binney whacks a few, but they're all out for 204. They lose the match by 16 runs. They lose the series. They give Pakistan their first ever series win in India, and they start a wait of 17 years until the next time India would win a test series against Pakistan. Could that have been the genesis of nightmares? I thought so until literally 25 minutes after I'd done all of this research and solved the clue and written it out. And then I just checked the patron inbox just to see if there was anything there. And there was a message from Vivek basically solving the clue for us because he hadn't heard it come up oh. for a while and thought that it was over. Oh, and he no. said, it's about Sachin Tendulkar making 204 against Shane Warne in Mumbai, for <laughs> Mumbai, in, in the warm-up game for an India series yeah, yeah. in 1998. And I was like, I just, oh. I was pretty happy with my answer. I, I, I prefer I prefer your answer, partly because in that first test in '98, Warren gets Tendulkar early, like before, isn't it? So I mean, yes, Tendulkar does go out and make a brilliant hundred in ooh, it was Chennai, wasn't it? But yeah, I don't I don't think it was as clear cut as that. So your answer's better, but Vivek, we're we're appreciative of. Well, being Vivek able to- pulled his answer actually. That's what happened. He said, "You know what? We've heard enough about Satchel lately. We don't need to talk about him again. I'm dragging my my number because because of what the answer is. And I was like, <laughs> all right, well, you can have this answer instead, Vivek. You can have India all out 
for 204 against Pakistan in 87. Shane McInerney is next with 526AUD. Uh, I'm going to stick with the theme of Fifers. I've done a, a couple of those today. It's just how they come out. Five for 26. We could go with David Capel, who passed away last year. That was his test number. Uh, he was a Northants legend who coached the club and coached the England women's team, played 15 test matches between 1987 and 1990. Or we could go with JJ Ferris at Lords in 1888 against England in the fourth innings. But instead, why don't we stick in that era and go to George Giffen and his brilliant performance in 1895? And the reason I want to do that is because, well, I didn't know an awful lot about this series, and it turns out um, it, it was mightily controversial. So Giffen, the South Australian, made his test debut three years earlier in, in that watershed test match at the Oval in 1882. Uh, and by the time England visit in 1884-85, he's the captain. He's batting number three, and he's their most important slow bowler. He's bowling kind of medium pace off spin, but he's their, effectively their principal spinner. Mm-hmm. And coming into the fourth test match, England are going quite nicely under Alfred Shaw. They're leading the series 2-1. But why are they leading the series 2-1? Because the Australians went on strike for tests 2 and 3. Now, mm-hmm. as we know, these matches... They didn't know they would be retrospectively called test matches. That doesn't happen until 1890. But, you know, it's still big cricket, as it was known at the time. In effect, the players wanted larger profits from the gate than they were getting, so they they withheld their labour. And the public were fuming about it. Um, The South Australian Attorney-General at the time described them as sacrificing cricketing honour of their nation for money. And England Mm. duly won both of those test matches to get into a great position when they returned to Sydney for the fourth test. If only Alan Joyce had been running the show at the time, you know, everything (laughs) would have... have, uh... We would have found a way to bust that in no time. Everything would have been fine. Yeah, I still haven't forgiven Alan Joyce for what happened in, in 2011. It was the weekend before I was going off to live in the UK for a year. And uh, my best mate was uh, on the tarmac, ready to fly down to see me before I went. And then his flight was grounded and he had to go back home. And mm-hmm. that was that. Uh, well, you don't have to go back to 2011. You can go back to about two weeks ago at Easter and, you know, every airport in Australia being fucked because they'd sacked all of the workers. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're into the fourth test. Alfred Shaw wins the toss and sends Giffen's team in, who make 284, which was pretty big in those days. Uh, Harry Graham made 105 in 145 minutes, which is pretty quick in those days too. He had great support from Albert Trott, who smashed 85, not out. They put on a big partnership for the eighth wicket. Stumps on day one, England are already 11 for one. Trott gets the early wicket. Day two's rained out. So what did they do on day three? Rest day, of course. Day two's rained out. (laughs) Take your your rest day. day. Don't come back. Mm -hmm. They did come back on day four, though, and and they were routed for 65. Three wickets for Trot, three wickets for Terra Turner, and three wickets for our man, George Giffen. Now, they enforced a follow-on and effectively did the same thing. They bowled at England the second time for 72. It was all over in two playing days, and in that second innings, Giffen uh, takes five for 26, the number, and, and Turner... Four for 33. Trot wasn't even required. They did the whole bit unchanged, a la, uh, who was it recently against Bangladesh? It was uh, Maharaj and Harma who bowled out Bangladesh twice mm-hmm. unchanged in the fourth innings, wasn't it? But do you think they carried that momentum into the decider? Of course they didn't. England won the next test match by an innings to, to win a wild series in Australia, 3-2. As for Giffen, after his 
31 test matches for 103 wickets and 1,238 runs. He went back to the South Australian Postal Service where he worked before he started as a cricketer. He worked there for 43 years, did a little bit of coaching on the side um, before he passed away in 1927. And I can only assume, based on what he did as captain, that he spent those years in the Postal Service as a proud member of his trade union. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, Solidarity, solidarity. The workers united will never be defeated. Simon McInerney, thank you. Thank you for that. Samuel Chappell, friend of the show. Very, very good friend of the show, Sammy Chappell, former White Line Wireless alumni. Alumnus, singular, I suppose, must be an alumnus. Alumni, alumnus, yeah. $3.70. And uh, he sent through a clue that that said this is 37.0. And the only thing I can say is that it's a little bit spooky. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things I thought for this, Adam, spooky. Could it be something that happened on Halloween on the 31st of October? <laughs> uh, initially, I was thinking about looking for every game that had been played on the 31st of October. But then I also thought 37.0 implies it's a sort of an average, like rather than a single match kind of thing. So probably not that. The Adams family, I thought, a little bit spooky, you know, something, whatever it is, and kooky. Um, I was like, could this be like the Andre Adams family? You know, could it be? <laughs> could it be to do with Paul Adams, Jimmy Adams, Chris Adams, Georgia Adams? I actually looked at all of them. Couldn't find anything related to thirty-seven point zero. There. Um, worth noting that a fellow called Douglas Adams, not the writer, but someone else. Douglas Adams, Morris Adams and George Adams all played for the USA. They were a genuine Adams family for a second. I thought I'd found there, but they're sadly from very different eras and thus not brothers, not related. Uh, Frank Adams Iredale played 14 tests for Australia Mm. in the 1980s. No, 1890s. That would have been a turn up for the books if he'd done it in the 1980s. Uh, And he averaged 36.68. Which, you know, if you were doing it as a whole number, you would round up to 37. But Sam was too specific with his decimal place for that to be able to be the case. So it was almost an answer that I was happy with, but I couldn't be in the end. So I was looking for 37.0s in in career senses. Um, Quite a lot of people have averaged that with the bat across the formats, across men's and women's cricket, 37.0. Fewer of them in a bowling sense, uh, but I did. I was interested to find the New Zealand bowler Robert Cunis, who Daniel Norcross spoke about on <laughs> the show the some other. weeks ago. Yes, neither, neither one thing nor the other was, I think, the, the way that, that Daniel recounted the uh, John Arlett commentary about that one. So Robert Cunis took 51 test wickets at 37.00, which I thought is a lot. It's a lot of wickets to have a perfectly even 0-0 batting average, yeah. right? And for a second, bowling average rather. And I thought, is that the most wickets for an even average? And then I remember Jeff Thompson <laughs> and his 28.00, <laughs> which you contend should be 28.01. And, and I, I have some sympathy for that interpretation of the numbers. So, But, you know, in terms of the way they are recorded, he, he certainly has the most wickets for a perfectly even average. I did look at others who had that. Venkatesh Prasad, 96 wickets for 35.00. Sikander Bakht, 67 wickets for 37.00. And Matt Henry, 51 wickets for 38. Kepler Vessels, 18 one-day wickets for 37.00. But the real spooky one here in one-day cricket, New Zealand seamer Mark Gillespie, who took 37 wickets at 37 runs apiece. Exactly. 
Exactly. So uh, there are only five other bowlers in men's ODI history who took more wickets at a completely even average. And who should be on that list of only five but Andre Adams? Oh, good. Spooky. Very good. So Gillespie has the highest average that also matches a career tally of wickets. Because, you know, if you if you say averaging 102, you're unlikely to get to bowl enough to take mm-hmm. 102 wickets. So he's he's just at that tipping point of, you know, having played enough cricket to, to get there while while it being a sort of average you might you might get. And in terms of spookiness, what's the go with all of these Kiwi bowlers? Everybody like almost everyone who's got a dead even average, Matt Henry in there, Mark Gillespie in there, Andre Adams in there, and Amelia Kerr. Bobby Kunis. Yeah, Kunis as well. And Amelia Kerr, at present, mm-hmm. 76 one-day wickets at exactly 27 runs apiece, 27.00. The Kiwis, they're coming. It's a bit spooky. It's almost certainly not Sammy's answer, but it was pretty good. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Uh, Jeff, that's the end of our new numbers. Uh, if you like what we've done over the last God knows how long, I'm absolutely cooked. Patreon.com forward slash the final words. Submit your nerd pledge. Support what we're doing on the show. Uh, it helps you, uh, well, it doesn't help you. It entitles you to entry to our Discord channel, which is a pretty lovely place. Uh, and you can have that warm and fuzzy feeling knowing that you are helping get this show made at least twice a week often many times more than twice a week we've got the daily show starting again uh, for the New Zealand test series the week after next we'll be doing daily shows in Sri Lanka as we will for much of the English summer so uh, if you want to help uh, us do that in a way that's sustainable uh, patron.com forward slash the final word and, and get amongst uh, the discord channel while you're there we have revisits we have revisits plenty. the first of these is 1690 from DKK uh, that was from Owen uh, also known as Rudy Vola. Jeff there was a bit going on here the clue the secondary clue I can't remember what we said originally I, I think I had a 16 for 90 match figures if I recall correctly uh, Rudy says this is played at the birthplace of International Association Football and Rahul got a first baller. Worried this might be too difficult as there is limited info about this match online. So additional clues are this. 169 is the team total in a single match and I'm Scottish. Yes. Okay, so Rudy slash Owen uh, is Scottish. We know that because he talks about Scottish cricket on the Discord chat page a lot. And so here is... I mean, this is a real turn up for the books. So I'm going to roll in a confirmation first. So last time we did story time, we had a number which was £6.66 from Edward Edgecombe. And I said that was a Rahul Dravid's season average for Scotland. And he said that was correct. He let us know you're obviously spot on and have spared us all from clues about walls, right? And so that was Dravid's average of 11 innings in the domestic one-day competition in which he played a single season for Scotland in 2003. One thing that I knew from researching that but did not mention in the show because it was not relevant is that that average was over 11 innings. He did play 12 times for Scotland that season because they played a tour game, a warm-up 50-over match against the touring Pakistani team who were coming to England that summer. Uh, The very tall Pakistani Seema Shabir Ahmed Got Raul Dravid out, caught behind for a golden 
duck. And thus, you know, I suppose it could have been a bit of interesting colour to throw in, but I thought it's not relevant to the number of the 66.6 that he averaged in the games when he did score runs, and in this game he didn't score one, and it wasn't in that comp, so I didn't mention it at the time. On that day, Scotland were all out for 169, but they still nearly won the game because Mohamed Hafiz was out early. They kept chipping away with wickets at regular intervals. Uh, Shoab Malik... Another 1999 starter made 52 not out as the key wicket. And still, by the time the ninth wicket fell, they were five runs short. Sports betting enthusiast Danish Canaria hits a boundary and then gets them home with a single. I'm not sure if he was plunging on that or not, but um, the best bit of all is, and this will tickle you, Adam, is that Owen was a junior player in Scots cricket. So he was the scoreboard operator for this match in which Pakistan nearly lost and ended up nine wickets down trying to chase 169 against Scotland in 2003. Oh, beautifully done, Jeff. And nice assist there from Rudy with his own number. But can you believe we had two numbers on the same show about that? About Raul Dravid playing a season for Scotland in 2003. Yeah. About- like, if you think we're nerds, our listeners have taken it to another level. This is incredible. And to think it's all down to a shagging holiday, which kind of leads us into Pat Rogers, who um, dropped us a line about Edward Edgecombe 666. He checked on Bradman's uh, honeymoon tour of North America in 1932, which we also detailed in that answer. Mailey reimbursed Bradman for the lost salary and agreed to pay for Jesse's travel and accommodation costs for the whole tour. It was her first trip overseas. On the way home, the team stopped at Wellington, New Zealand, where an exhibition game was cancelled due to the weather. According to Rick Sisson's book on the tour, The Don Meets the Babe, while the rest of the team stayed on board the Monowai, Don and Jesse went to stay at a hotel in Wellington. Late that night, an arrangement was made to play a two-hour exhibition at the Basin Reserve, but by the time Don Bradman was contacted, he and Jesse had already left for a drive through the Hutt Valley. The local cricket association and Don Bradman apologised and regretted the confusion. <laughs> uh, well, look, look. Is that a euphemism? He took, her, he took her for a drive on the Hutt Valley? A drive through the Hutt Valley. Hmm. <laughs> could be. Could be. Um, yeah, look, if, if, you, if you told me I could watch Don Bradman play in a two-hour exhibition game, I would go. But you couldn't, also couldn't be that mad that he wasn't there. You know, I yes. can't believe you missed the two-hour exhibition game. <laughs> uh, any rate, two Scottish rail driver numbers in one week. Incredible stuff. Uh, George Pearson is a revisit with 431. Uh, Daniel Norcross had a couple of guesses. George said, this cricketer is a personal hero for off-field work, but the clue related to on-field work. He's not Cornish, but will claim him anyway. Being an English cricket fan in my 30s, I knew nothing but pain, and this number related to the player helping end that lifetime. Yeah, and we did mention this stat back in March, but not in relation to George. And it's the fact that Marcus Triscothic made 431 during the Ashes series of 2005. We mostly remember that 90 he made on morning one at Edgbaston, but it's worth us stepping back from this a little bit, I reckon, because like he was instrumental to that um, generation of English success building 205, which pretty much begins in 2000, that um, that century, and 57 he made in the second dig at Gaul when they have uh, a series victory there not long after the Pakistan win. That, that gave them some belief. And you press ahead to 2005. We were also, not long ago, talking about um, the the test match uh, to start the series where England were kind of in it 
more than people remember. He and Andrew Strauss were batting quite well, chasing 350 or thereabouts before both were dismissed in the 40s and it was game over when McGrath and Warren took them out. But yeah, Edgbaston, the second test, 90 in 102 minutes after Australia elected bowl first, two sixes before lunch on day one, all quite unusual and it set the tone for all that followed and that exceptional um, test match at Birmingham. And then he has this great run where at Manchester he makes 63 and 41. At Nottingham, he makes 65 and 47. And at the Oval, he makes 43 and 33. So he doesn't get his, like, his headline moment. Even Michael Vaughan gets a headline moment. Not, not He didn't make bulk runs through the series, but he did make a century at Old Trafford. But you're looking through it there. What Truscothic did, he, he denied Australia early wickets. He played a, a crucial role making 431 runs for the series, even in the absence of a century. And for Truscothic... It, it wasn't the beginning of the end. He did go on to make runs in Pakistan. Uh, I think he captained England in, in Pakistan in 05 as well, made a, a big ton at Multan to start the series. But uh, unfortunately, he only played one more home summer. He um, His career, in effect, ended uh, when he returned home uh, early at the start of the 06-07 Ashes series. But as George Pearson says in his uh, clue, it, it was a, a time where a lot of England fans were able to release a lot of hurt, and Truscothic was a big part of that. So even though he didn't, end up with an ashes ton anyone that was paying attention knows exactly what he did in 2005 to make that joy possible 433 of the best very good uh thank you george for your patience with us coming around to the revisit uh josh golby 451 you talked about john jamison uh the warwickshire opener josh said it's not that it's about a total it's the most in test cricket for that total it's one half of a stat normally spoken about in conjunction with another, and the total for the other stat is zero. And he said, I'd love to hear more about this player who is recent enough that I should know more. And, well, this is just, just perfect confluence that this works out after the Marcus Triscothic answer because, look, I went all over the place for this. So thinking about one half of a stat and another half of a stat, and it obviously wasn't runs and wickets like a bowling analysis, but it sounded like it should be fours and sixes. And I was like, 451, Does, could this be four sixes and 51 fours? Yeah. And no, because I know that Edridge hit 52 fours in that innings and that's the most in the test innings and, and the only one up around that area i thought four five one could it be 45 fours and one six brian lara hit 45 boundaries when he made 375 but he did not hit one in the air he didn't hit a six in the innings and then i remembered that the clue said it was a career total okay jonathan trot whose first name was actually ian scored 3800 runs in tests nearly half of them came via fours how many fours was that? 451. He has scored the most boundaries in test cricket by any player who never hit a six in his career. Neil Harvey scored 452 fours, but he did hit a six. Just the one. Hashan Tilakaratna hit one six with a bunch of fours. Even Bradman hit half a dozen sixes. Trot kept it on the ground. Never went in the air. And, you know, Adam, you've got more of an eye for English cricket than I do, but... The story, the basic story is a ton on debut in the ceiling ashes win of 2009 at the Oval as the perfect start and then mm. he's the bedrock of England's rise to number one, batting at first drop, 
doing that difficult job there and doing it really well. And in retrospect, it seems like quite a short career because it's basically that 09 Ashes through to the 2013-14, the start of that 13-14 series. Um, but he did play 52 tests, which is the same as Bradman. And he did make nine hundreds, which is less than one third of the number of hundreds that Bradman made. <laughs> um, but that's fair enough. I think it would be unreasonable to expect people to uh, to match up with DGB. Uh it, it comes apart in 2013. He has that short comeback as an opener in 2015 for a, a couple of matches, and then that's it. Uh, he's, he was done with Test cricket and uh, and done with first class cricket not that long after that. But in that four year window, England went to number one in the world, and, and he was one of the most important pieces in that. Yeah, he was, and, and the way that it started in in 2009 at the Oval. I think we undervalue how good 09 was because of the series that preceded it four years earlier. The documentary that Barney Douglas made we had uh, he and Felix White on the show gee three years ago 2019 uh, was when we had them on uh, to talk about the edge well um, that does a wonderful job of of going into that particular test match how full-on it was and uh, the performance of Trot uh, century on test taboo as if it were foretold uh, brilliant English performance to, to win uh, that series there at the Oval and yeah as you say went on to be the glue in there at number three and they've really been they've been looking for a replacement to Jonathan Trott for seven years now haven't they they've never had a dependable number three even the we, we miss this in the weekly show but the discussion around Ollie Pope who's returning to bat at three for England it's like a a bogey position mm-hmm. because the number three is effectively another opener they're coming in so early or well, so it's been in recent summers so yeah Pope gets that responsibility uh, for the New Zealand series at least and yeah I don't think anyone uh, well it's hard to think of anyone around the world in the last 20 years who's done it as well as Jonathan Trott because yeah, his career starts just as Ponting finishes and, and it was Ponting and and uh, and then Trott who were the two best number threes in the world because Smith's never really been a, an out-and-out number three nor is Coley nor is Williamson They're, they've all been kind of superstars from four route likewise they've, they've all batted three occasionally but yeah the, the old-fashioned idea of uh, well, it's a very Australian old-fashioned idea, I suppose, of your best player bats three. That was the case with Ponting and, yeah, for a time with Trot too. Right, so that is the 451 fours scored by Jonathan Trot. Uh, Duncan Davies is up with his 215. Oh, we had a bunch of different goes at this. Um, he says that he'd, he was running behind with a backlog of story time, got to the episode with his pledge on it, and he says it is with great regret that I inform you that my number was not about you guys writing a musical with Derek Pringle. <laughs> that episode was loose. Yes, that episode it was it. extremely loose. Um, he said, but don't let me stop you, basically. He says it was not about Gower, Smith, Langer, Manus. You've been solving a number of highly cryptic clues of late. Uh, I will go in another direction. 2.15 relates to a crazy debut. Yeah a, yeah, a crazy debut and a bizarre and altogether brief career, living the Vida Loca, living the crazy life, Jason Crazier. Yeah, uh, well, it, it's going to shock nobody that it's referring to his test taboo when he takes eight for 215 uh, in his first innings, but I thought it was worth going back and, and having a think about Jason Crazier's career. I mean, because it is a very old arc. I mean, it starts at New South Wales for a couple of seasons in in the mid-2000s and in a pretty competitive team, so he sets off to Tasmania. Nothing particularly unusual about that, but in that era, he had to get beyond Stuart McGill, Nathan Horrocks and Bo Casson, who were all test players. So he went mid-season to Tasmania. That was a bit unusual uh, in 06-07. And then he nearly doesn't get a start in 07-08 because 
in the off-season, he got done for drink driving. So he's starting on the back foot, you know, seven oh eight. He doesn't go on to have a brilliant season either. He takes his wickets at 47 that year. I mean, he, he has some good moments that's borne out by his figures, but... Yeah, he, he wasn't dominating games of cricket. And, but what do you know? In that very strange time post-Warn when everyone was getting an opportunity who was able to turn it off the straight, there he was in India in 2008 being named in the Test Squad. So a guy who couldn't make the New South Wales team 18 months earlier, went to Tassie mid-season, nearly didn't get a contract because of drink driving, doesn't really do particularly much to suggest he's a world beater in the shield and gets his Test cap. It's helped by the fact that McGill... Finished up as a test player earlier that year against the West Indies and, and the Bo Casson experiment wasn't really working out, I suppose. And Bryce McGain was ahead of him in the pecking order. but And McGain was in career best form when they went to India, but he got injured and couldn't play. So it was just Cameron White playing in the first three test matches alongside the quicks. That was in the era when they were still wedded to three quicks in a spinner. No matter where it was, three quicks in a spinner. We're playing on a dust bowl, three quicks in a spinner. Uh, we're playing in goal, three quicks in a spinner. So it was for the first three test matches of the 08 series. And Crazier wasn't exactly um, uh, making a great claim for selection, I should say. He played a tour game where he had 199 runs taken from 31 overs against the board 11. So, you know, and that was... It was what it was, right? But then, for the fourth Test match, which had a bit riding on it, because if Australia won there at Nagpur, it would have meant retaining the Border Gavaskar Trophy, having retained it in India, but having won in India four years earlier. So they changed the formula. He's partnering with Cameron White. And then all hell breaks loose. He gets Travid, his first wicket in Test cricket. And then he bowls a, a ball of the century contender to knock over Lakshman. In fact, I think Crick Info did... A series, didn't they? The, the best 10 balls of the century or something. And Dan Bredig, I'm pretty sure, wrote the, the Jason Crazier nomination. I mean, mm. it pitches almost off the cut strip and it bowls Lakshman. Yes, that guy, VVS Lakshman, leg stump out of the ground. Leg stump out of the ground. <laughs> it turned, I mean, it turns as far as Warren turned it as a wrist spinner. It's freakish. I mean, it, yes, it landed in the rough, but he got so much work on it. And yeah, it was a bit like that after that. He bowled brilliant deliveries into the rough and get wickets, and then he would just be pongoed all over the place when he didn't get it right. Sadly, there's not much on YouTube, so I can't elaborate much more on the wickets. I just remember watching it in the PM's office where I was working at the time and being mesmerized by <laughs> what was going on. When it was all over, he, he had taken eight for 215, which was the most runs ever conceded yeah. by a bowler on Test Taboo. Four for 143 in the second innings to finish with 12 for 358 for the match. The second most wow. runs ever conceded in a Test match after Tommy Smith. And by the way, when did that happen? Where? When? Of course, Jamaica... April 1930, which I'm forming the view that in much the same way that 213 is the final word number that somehow comes up time and time again, that Jamaica, April 1930, is the epicentre of the final word universe. It's like where Sam leaps into in the final episode of Quantum Leap. Like, they kind of... They can't work out why it's there, but um, they, they decide that must be the uh, some the energy around that place and that time. Well, more well, so it is about yeah. the nine-day test match between the West Indies and England, which wasn't a test match then and there, but Andy Sandham's triple turn and Wilfred Rhodes' final test at age 52 and, and all the rest of it. Uh, that was where Tommy Scott went for... Nine for 374. Anyway, back to Crazier. Um, despite all of that, despite all of the runs taken from him, he was still named out of the match. And he comes back still to Australia. took 12. He still took 12, yeah. And he comes back to Australia as a point of profound fascination. Everybody wants a piece of him. 
I mean, there'll be a good piece to be written on this at some stage. But he misses the Brisbane test when they get home because they want to play four quicks. Okay, so it goes. Mm. Then he misses Adelaide because he's injured. Ritzy gets back in the team, Nathan Horrocks. But Horrocks doesn't go too well against New Zealand in the second test of that series. So when South Africa arrived, they go to Crazier for his first test on home soil. And that just happens to be where they chase down 414 in the fourth innings, uh, the, 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 highest, the, the highest chase ever in Australia at the Wacker for the loss of four wickets. And Crazier's figures in that test, one for 103 and none for 106. So he has two for 209 to go with 12 for 358. And that tour game I mentioned earlier where he took none for 199 from 31 overs. So there was definitely a, a bit of a theme the selectors were sensing here. So they dumped him. Brought back Ritzy, who got a proper run at it, and that's it for Crazier as far as Test cricket is concerned. He got a brief second life as a one-day bowler in and around the 2011 World Cup. Again, kind of from nowhere, but a year after that in 2012, that's it. Done as a professional player by age 29. I mean, he'll always have Nagpur and that remarkable debut. Um, But yeah, he he packed a lot into a, a very brief space of time. Uh, and yeah, you know, I, I don't think I quite appreciated how odd the whole thing was until going back through it. Does that make me crazy? Does it, it really does? Um, yeah, it is. It, I remember it being bizarre at the time, and it is equally bizarre going back over it. Thank you, Duncan, for the number. Uh, Elliot Diamond, his uh, revisit of five thirty-seven. Yes. This is the one that you said Adam was David Boone, five tons, thirty-seven fifties. The number um, plate one. The one. This, I, this is the one from the start of the show where we where I where I was yep. uh, able to tell you about Tony Flynn's email when he was listening to this being solved a couple of weeks ago on Storytime eighty-eight. Yep, and I can't believe this is right. Well, I remember saying I'm concerned that David Boone is a bit too old in era to necessarily match up with where I think Elliot watched his cricket as a child. He says the stat is correct, but believe it or not, another cricketer has 500s and 3750s in one day international cricket. So your creative solving was spot on in terms of working out how to interpret the number. It's just somebody else. So I was like, okay, who else has 500s and 3750s? Ahmed Sahail has 500s and 3150s. Brendan McCullum, 3250s. Hamilton Mazakadza, 3450s. I always remember him fondly because of... Uh, EA Sports Cricket 2002 when Richie Benno was doing the commentary and um, obviously when they were recording the names they hadn't included Hamilton Mazakadza for Zimbabwe because somebody else was recording <laughs> like every time he came out he'd be announced in somebody else's voice trying to sound vaguely like Richie Benno <laughs> <laughs> it was clearly not Richie Benno who had, so every other player Richie had recorded their names so that he'd be, he'd be like war bowling two Mazakadza. Um, it was definitely like, now it's over to my friend, Mr. Black. Mr. Black. Um, <laughs> kind of areas. So, so not him. Um, sports betting enthusiast Sally Malik. Love his numbers. 500s, 4750s. Mmm. Had, <laughs> had a few quid on some of those. <laughs> the only other player with 3750s out of the five centuries club is Damian Martin, who actually averaged 103 in innings when he opened and didn't face the first ball um, in one-day cricket, and he averaged 64 at first drop. So naturally, being Australia, he spent most of his career in the middle order instead of either of those positions. But he did make 37.50s. He did make five tonnes, and two of those five tonnes were opening the batting as a a fill-in player when he played a handful of innings at the top of the order. But that was the player that Elliot loved watching. 
Thank you, Elliot Diamond, for helping us along to the finish line there. Chris Beatty. Now, I think we're on to our fourth swing on this one, Jeff. This is uh, the, this yep. is the, the number that relates to something that changed over the holiday period last year. Um, Chris uh, is slightly apologetic for how he steered us by saying holiday season in his previous clue. Having lived in Australia for nearly three years, I now refer to the holiday season. It's the full period between Christmas Day and the 26th of January, so in effect the school holidays. To set you back on track, I'll give you the following clues. The number has not shifted from 388 since my last clue. It's not Test Cricket. And the player was in the 2021 One Day Team of the Year. And that didn't take long to realise means we're talking about Paul Sterling, whose one-day batting average is 38.82 at the moment and must have roughly been that through that holiday period. He went at 80 last year, Sterlo, with three centuries, which was helped along by that series against the West Indies where he was at the peak of his powers. Uh, he was selected as the opener in that ICC team of the year in the one-day form of the game, which gives a sense of where he's at. There were two Irish players in there. Simi Singh, the spinner, also got a start. And Chris is right here. We, we probably don't give Paul Sterling uh, enough attention given what a force he's been around the world. I, I always think of him as a young player, even though he's 31 now. He's got more clubs on his Crick Info page than Dirk Nannis. He, he's a proper hustler, a proper T20 scenester. Um, he, he was, of course, there with Ireland all the way back from 2008 onwards, including at Bangalore in 2011, all of their major moments since. Over 5,000 one-day runs in 133 hits and an excellent short-form record in, in T20 cricket and the 100, which is where I expect he'll end up again this year, as well as the Blast. He's always playing somewhere. Um, and a big opportunity for Ireland this year with players like Sterling doing so well to get themselves into the World Cup without having to go through qualifying. If they do well against New Zealand specifically in that one-day series in July, or no, it's June actually, isn't it? Um, they could theoretically uh, make the World Cup without having to go through qualification because they beat the Windies 3-0 and they, and they won a game against England. So we'll keep a close eye on that on the final word. I might try and get over there if, if, uh, if diaries permit. And uh, we'll see plenty more of Paul Sterling through the northern summer, I'm sure, with his one-day batting average of 38.8, which must be Chris Beattie's 3.88, solved at last. Ah, solved at last, solved at last. Uh, one more to come and talking about solved at last. Matt May, we've been looking at this for weeks. The number is 557. We've given it all kinds of answers, yes. uh, all kinds of explorations. The basic parts of the clue that are pertinent are these, Matt said, it's part of a series that no longer exists. We deduced over a long period of time that the match was played at Adelaide Oval. And Matt said, a great day that no one talks about. The letter V is prominent for both the game and the series. So, look, I looked at all kinds of stuff deep in the weeds of the Mercantile Mutual Cup. I was looking at Victoria because I was thinking V's got to be a big V connection, you know, maybe... I don't know, Gary Ablett at full forward, something like that. <laughs> 557, the number, so close on this that in the last ever Mercantile Mutual Cup match, South Australia needed 5.56 per over to beat Victoria, the last match at, at Adelaide Oval, and they did it, they saluted. So it was one decimal point off, but no. And I looked at that as well, by the way, Jeff. I think there were 558 runs made in that game. So 5.56 runs that oh. I needed and 558 runs made between the teams. So I had, I had a peek at that scorecard too. <laughs> so, but where we end up, the, the Vs involved are because this was in the VB series, the tri-series, 
and it involved VVS Lakshman. This is a match from 2004 when Zimbabwe played India at Adelaide Oval. And I remember this game, you know, once I found the scorecard, I remember watching this live because it was an extraordinary game in that Zimbabwe very much underclubbed and, and, and outclassed. Mm. They come out and they knock over the first three Indian batsmen with four runs on the board. So Sanjay Banga, party of Patel. What a way to start an innings, by the way. Start with a party and some bangers. <laughs> Incredible. They both make ducks. Surav Ganguly makes one, and India have lost their first three wickets for four down. And then it's a Lakshman and Dravid special at Adelaide Oval just once again. So Lakshman makes 131. Incredible innings. Dravid makes a 50 in support. Um, and then Rowan Gavaskar, we've talked about Sunil Gavaskar earlier oh, yeah. today, but he makes a 50 as well. Gets them up to 280 for seven. And at that point, you're thinking, well, Zimbabwe have let it slip. There's no way they'll beat a decent team from here. Um, Even more so when they're three for 46. They sent Travis Friend out at first drop, clearly as a pinch hitter, because he was like a number nine in the, or 10 in the test team. Um, You know, came out to have have a go. But Stuart Carlisle and Sean Irvin put on a partnership of 202. They both made hundreds. They're cruising, right? They're three for 248. They need 280. They're going to win. And then he gets run out for an even 100. And suddenly things start to shake a bit. They've got Andy Blignaud out there. He can smack the ball. But they need seven runs from the last four balls. And he holds out. He gets caught by who other than VVS Laxman running in from the deep. And Stuart Carlisle, who's got 109, gets himself out trying to hit big and get them home. And they end up falling just short. They bat out their 50 overs, but they're six for 277. So they lose by three runs. They've let it through their fingers twice on the same day, Zimbabwe. But it was a, a wonderful contest and, a, and one of the very memorable tri-series matches between the, the neutral sides, as they used to get called. Bring it back. Bring back the Tri-Series. You're hearing it Bring more it and more. You're hearing it more and more, especially from uh, Thomas Miles, who's one of our yeah. uh, regular correspondents, making the case that we have to bring back the Tri-Series. I'm very pleased that both Chris Beatty and Matt May, uh, I'm pretty sure we've got both of those right. We'll find out... Oh, I should say, the reason that Matt May's number is 557 is that if you add the two team scores... 280 and 277, you get 557. Ah, which is what I was trying to do with the Mercantile Mutual Cup game. Yes. We go full circle. Uh, We'll find out next week in the confirmation segment, which we're going to skip over this week because we've been recording for so long, but we do have a a bank of confirmations that we will add to from what we've done today and we'll we'll make that a bigger part of the show next week Jeff because it's uh it's quarter past 12 I'm knackered and I've got to be up in six hours how's that sound uh that sounds very unpleasant I'm sorry um I'm probably gonna go back to bed at the same time as you go back to bed <laughs> because you know it's quarter past nine in the morning in Melbourne and that is a perfectly reasonable time to be in bed I feel um but we've made it to the end of another show and if you've made it to the end of the show thank you so much to everybody who's listening and through, especially to everybody who sent in numbers and uh, helped us keep the show going. You are our lifeblood. You are the wind beneath our wings. You lift us up where we belong. Uh, thank you. We love you. Uh, thanks to Dave Collins, who edits this show. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. And it is hosted by Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, who is extremely sleepy. Uh, and let us send you off to bed. Good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about-